Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Our sermon text this morning is from Titus chapter 3, and it deals with the, with the interaction between all three persons of the Trinity regarding our salvation. And just a little ba- bit of background to begin with, Titus is a pastor on the island nation of Crete. Uh, at the time, Crete was a Roman colony that was, that was steeped in the Greco-Roman culture. And in fact, Zeus, the chief deity among the Greeks, of uh, the Roman pantheon, I'm sorry, is said to have been born on that island. And Paul visited Crete on, on his way to face trial before Caesar, and it's believed that he visited that island after he was released from jail following that appeal to Caesar. And Paul writes this letter to Titus to encourage this pastor to keep strong in the faith, to keep teaching uh, his people the, the message of the truth of the gospel. And so as we read this letter from Paul to Titus, notice the emphasis that Paul places on our salvation. The phrase, God saved us, he saved us, is at the center of this text and the epistle as a whole. So would you stand with me as I read Titus chapter 3? We'll be reading verses 3 through 8 in Jesus' name. Titus 3, 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, These things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do again thank you for this morning, this Memorial Day weekend, this Trinity Sunday. Father, And we thank you for who you are, uh, really a mystery that we cannot comprehend. Lord, and we, we rejoice in that, we celebrate that, we revel in that, that we cannot comprehend you, because if we could, uh, then I think uh, you wouldn't be God. Uh, but we look forward to that day where we will see you face to face. And we pray now for this morning, and we ask that you be with us as we look at your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. He saved us. I hope you caught that emphasis. And in fact, in the Greek, verses 4 through 7 are one long run-on sentence that has at its core uh, one main theme, one subject, one verb, one direct object. He saved us. 
And everything else in those verses, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, build off of that key phrase, He saved us. And it begs the question, from what? From what did he save us? In verse 3, Paul tells us that. He, he answers it. He saves us from. And he said, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In this verse, there are seven specific sins that Paul mentions. And these seven sins are really just, uh, they really form just the tip of the iceberg. And just like an iceberg, there's a whole lot going on underneath the surface that we might not recognize at first glance. And, and most, of these, most of these sins that Paul mentions are, are self-explanatory, aren't they? We don't need to take a whole lot of time to unpack them. Hatred and malice and envy enslaved by passions and your pleasures, being led astray into sin, being willingly disobedient. Um, with all of those, we understand why they are sinful and, we don't, and why they separate us from the Lord. Uh, but the first one that Paul mentions uh, is, is sort of unique. Foolish, he says. <laughs> but this isn't just foolishness as we often think of it. Uh, usually for us, right, a, a fool is one who makes silly statements or, or does uh, things that bring into question their grounding in reality. <laughs> but, but in the Bible, a fool do, is one who does not acknowledge the existence and the lordship of God. David says in the Psalms, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That person is foolish because God has revealed himself through, through nature and declared himself through his word, uh, yet he is rejected, utterly rejected by the fool. The biblical definition of a, of a fool is one who lives as if God doesn't exist and that this life is all there is. And that's why, that's why biblical foolishness is so dangerous. These, these seven sins, however, again, were just the tip of the iceberg uh, as far as the depravity of mankind goes. Uh, it could get worse from there. Paul could have gone on listing sins until his pen ran out of ink, but, but he quit there because enumerating sins isn't necessarily his point. Uh, the point, right, is that we are all dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And by listing these seven sins, Paul wasn't just picking on those people who were over there on the island of Crete. This wasn't just some sinners over there mentality. Uh, Paul says, we ourselves. Who's included? We ourselves. He includes himself and all Christians in that category. Before Christ came into our lives, Paul says, that was us, depraved, sinful by nature, dead in our trespasses and in our sins, separated apart from Christ, all of us lost, separated from God. And it's a truth that should really keep us humble, shouldn't it? We're not better than anyone else. The story is told of uh, D.L. Moody, the 19th century uh, evangelist and founder of the school in Chicago that bears his name, the Moody Bible Institute. Uh, D.L. Moody was walking through town and saw a drunk who had passed out on the street gutter. And instead of reprimanding the drunk for his drunkenness or openly displaying his disgust at what he was seeing, uh, Moody simply said, There, but for the grace of God, go I. Hmm. 
And I like that. Moody knew that the only thing that separated himself from that drunk uh, and from sharing that same fate was God's grace. We ourselves, Paul says. But still, even when we were unlovely, from a, from a spiritual standpoint anyway, God still loved us and he still saved us. And that brings us to the next remarkable truth about the phrase, he saved us. How? How did he save us? Uh, look at 4 in the first part of verse 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He saved us. How? When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And I love that word, uh, appeared. The Greek word for appeared is epiphiano, right? From where we get our, uh, our English word, epiphany. And usually we think of that word in connection with Christmas, the Christmas season when, when the wise men meet the baby Jesus and all of that. He, in, in essence, appears to them, epiphanies to them, to the wise men, makes himself known. But the word epiphany can also mean to provide illumination and to give light to. Uh, the picture is, is of the light of a candle being brought into a dark room and, and illuminating the surroundings. God's goodness and loving kindness are like that. They are, the, they are like a light that has appeared shining into the darkness of our souls. And when did this goodness and loving kindness of God appear? When did it epiphany? It appeared around 2,000 years ago, right? As God sent his son Jesus, the light of the world, to shine into the darkness of our hearts, to shine into the darkness of our sin and our mess, to die for our sins. On the cross, the goodness and loving kindness of God was on full display, shining brightly. And as Christ hung on the cross, he took upon himself your sin and the sin of the whole world. He died for you, dying in your place and on your behalf, winning the victory over sin, death, and the devil winning, bringing the salvation of God to you. Jesus gave himself for you. This weekend is Memorial Day weekend, isn't it? And this weekend is, is not just about lakes or grilling out. Uh, it's not about being the official, unofficial start of summer. Memorial Day weekend is when we, as Americans, rightly honor the, the memory and the sacrifice of the men and the women who gave themselves in defense of this nation. We honor and we esteem them for dying for us, uh, maintaining the freedoms that we have. We hold them in regard, remembering the families that they have left behind. And we also remember today and every day Christ's sacrificial death for us. Each day for believers, Sundays in particular, each day for us is a memorial day of Christ's death and resurrection. We gather together here on Sundays to celebrate that truth, to remember him, to remember the salvation that he won for us. He saved us. He saved you, Paul says in verse 5, not by works done by us in righteousness. In other words, your salvation doesn't come to you because you, of your good moral behavior. Salvation isn't something that can be earned or merited. That concept is foreign to most people, especially to us as hardworking mid Midwesterners, right? Uh, we, we, if you want something, we have to earn it. We have to work for it. We don't like to sit around waiting for a handout. We're going to go earn it. 
And I think that's a positive trait to have, but we, we can't take that mentality into our spiritual lives. We cannot work hard enough. We cannot be good enough. We cannot do enough good to earn our salvation. That won't earn you a place in eternity in heaven. But that is unfortunately probably not the thought process for most people. If you were to leave church today and... Uh, if you were to ask 10 people in the restaurant, in the store, or at the park, or whatever you've got going on later on today, ask them the question, how do you get to heaven? Uh, just ask that question. And I would wager that 9 out of those 10 would say that you get your ticket to heaven stamped by being a good moral person, by having good moral behavior. I'm a, I'm a good person they would claim. And then they might go on and casually mention something, some of the good things that they do and some of the bad things that they try to avoid. And oftentimes, uh, you begin to compare yourself with others when you, when you do that. Maybe not directly by name, but, uh, but the thought is often there. So you'd say things like, well, I'm not a habitual liar like, like, like our politicians and our elected officials. I don't gamble all of my money away like my, my, my brother does, right? I don't cheat on my spouse like my boss does. I, I, I'm not lazy like my coworker, right? I haven't joined a gang and murdered anybody like a lot of the stuff we're seeing in Minneapolis. I'm better than them, right, whoever they happen to be. We, however, are not told to, to measure our goodness uh, to the goodness or the evilness displayed in others. The story is told that, that at the end of World War I, uh, General Jack Black Pershing, there's, there's his picture, he was the commander of the American Expeditionary Forces, and the real reason the Allies won the war, uh, General Pershing sent word to the troops in Europe announcing a victory parade uh, through the streets of Paris. Hey, sounds great, right? Uh, there were only two requirements for the soldiers to qualify to march in the parade. Uh, they had to have a good service record, and they had to be tall, uh, at least 186 centimeters tall. And uh, word of this came to, uh, to the American soldiers, to the company of American soldiers there, and they were excited, right? It, it's going to be great to march in a victory parade after this long war. And, of course, being Americans, nobody knows exactly how tall 186 centimeters is. Uh, so, so the guys who qualified on merit began to naturally compare themselves to the guys next to them, right? And they've been lining up back to back, see who was the tallest. The, the shorter guys were, were being given a hard time, right? Ah, oh, tough luck, shorty. We'll think of you when we're in Paris. Uh, those, those sorts of things, right? But then a senior officer came to the company to find out if there were any qualified candidates for the parade, and he put a mark on the wall at 186 centimeters. And, and some men uh, took one look at that mark and, and walked away knowing that they were well short of the 186 centimeters. Others tried, but were still short. They fell short by just a, a small amount. And finally, the tallest man in the troop stood up to the mark, and he squared his shoulders and maybe even stood up a little bit tighter, right? But he discovered that he himself was a quarter inch shy of the 186 centimeter mark, uh, which is, by the way, uh, six foot and one half inches, if you were wondering. <laughs> when those men compared themselves with their peers, some thought they were tall enough to qualify. But when the standard came, it proved that none in that company could qualify. And it's commonly thought that the only way to get into heaven is by being a good person. And we start, naturally, by comparing ourselves with others. However, the standard is not your neighbor, but the standard set by God is perfection. 
total and complete perfection. And we fall so far short of that. We can't merit or earn back uh, the, the deficit either. Salvation left to us is totally outside of our grasp. So he saved us, Paul says, not according to works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. According to his mercy, he saved us. Mercy is often described as uh, the withholding of a just penalty, right? You were, you were speeding well in excess of the limit, but the, but the cop had mercy on you and she only gave you a warning. That never happens to anybody, right? <laughs> the cop didn't have to. She could have just written you up, and, uh, but she had mercy. She had compassion on you. She had kindness on you. God saved you, not because you're worthy, but simply according to his mercy, so far, Paul in this text has reiterated what we've been saved from and how God has saved us. And then in verses 5 and 6, Paul tells us the means by which God has saved us. He saved us by, look at these verses, verses 5 and 6. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. He saved us by. You see, God's grace and his salvation aren't imparted to believers in some uh, mystical, ethereal manner. God's grace and his salvation are imparted to you, believers, by means, by avenues, by channels which we receive it. Um, let me use this as an example. Uh, when you had your morning coffee this morning, as I trust you all did, uh, did that coffee get mystically and magically ingested into you? No, your coffee cup came to you by the means, by the avenue, the channel of your coffee mug, which brings that dark goodness to your lips and into your body, right? <laughs> it's the same way with God's grace. It comes to you by visible means. Primarily, God's grace comes to you through his word. As you open his word, as you read of his salvation in Christ, God's grace comes to you. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says, and hearing by the word of Christ. And in Scripture, there are two additional means of God's grace by which he brings his grace to individuals, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are what we call secondary means of grace, simply because they're only known to us through God's primary means of grace, his word. And so Paul, as he writes of one of these secondary means of grace here in Titus chapter 3, 5, he says, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is baptismal language here. God saving us by means of washing and renewal. Washing and and renewing. These are not two separate events. You don't get baptized and then later on renewed by the Spirit. Events occur simultaneously at the same time and they're inseparably linked to God's grace given at your baptism. He saves us by means of washing and renewing. And this washing and renewal comes as God pours out his grace and his Holy Spirit through his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, the mediator of this washing, of this renewing. It's only through Jesus, only through his sacrificial death on the cross that our washing and regeneration can come about. And by the way, I hope that you've noticed here in these verses the work of the Trinity 
on display. God the Father is our, our Savior. Jesus Christ, His Son, our Savior, the one who brought about our redemption. The Holy Spirit's the one who affects that redemption individually through washing, through renewal, through His Word. It's amazing to see that, isn't it? And so far this morning, we, we've seen from Paul uh, that God, what God has saved us from, how he has done it, and by what means God brought that salvation to us. And then finally, in verses 7 and 8, he gives us the reasons why he saved us. And we find them in two different so that statements. Uh, the first is found in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Just verse 7, he says, So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God saved us, Paul says, so that we might become heirs according to eternal life. An heir is somebody who's set to receive the material and monetary things after the death of somebody else, right? Um, Bill and Melinda Gates have made some headlines this last year because of some of the Microsoft founders' comments on COVID-19 and, and stuff like that. But, but aside from all of that, Bill is one of the richest people on earth. Even after he and his wife Melinda uh, divorced earlier this year, he's still the fourth richest person on earth. Uh, I checked out his net worth, and uh, as of, I think it was Friday, this number could have changed. As of Friday, this was his net worth, $126.9 billion, Okay. That's a lot of money, right? <laughs> he and his former wife have three children who are set to inherit the Gates Foundation after Bill and Melinda died. And, and $127 billion divided by three is, uh, is what? A, a, a lot, right? I can't do that math. <laughs> but, but Bill and Melinda have signed uh, what's been called the Giving Pledge, joining other billionaires who have pledged to give away most of their wealth after their death. Uh, each one of the Gates' children will only receive $10 million as an inheritance, less than 0.001% of their parents' fortune. <laughs> right, still a nice chunk of change, right? But uh, I think it's uh, rather unfortunate for the Gates' children, right, to receive just that small percentage of their parents' inheritance. As, as spiritual heirs of God, we know that we will not be shortchanged when it comes uh, to our inheritance, our salvation, our eternal life. God has saved us through Christ so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And spiritually then, this means that we are able to receive all of the blessings that God has for us in Christ. Life and eternal life, hope and joy, his power and his presence in the midst of all of life's storms. All of these life blessings and many more found in his word we have now through Jesus. And again, our inheritance isn't, isn't based because of something great that God saw within us. Uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, oftentimes a, a, an emperor would, would adopt one of his generals uh, to become the next emperor. He would pass over all of his sons and pick one of the, emperor, or one of the generals that he thought would make a good leader. Uh, but yet, as God's heirs, we, we're not qualified because of our goodness, but solely because of Christ and his death. In verse 7, Paul says that the sole qualification for us receiving the inheritance is God's grace alone. Being justified, he says, being declared right by his grace. He saved us out of his grace so that we might be children. We might become his heirs through Christ. 
That's a wonderful promise. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? And there's a second reason, a second so that statement of why God saved us, and it's found in verse 8. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, Paul says, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might devote themselves to, to do good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. We are saved, Paul says, so that we might devote ourselves to good works. And good works often get a, a bad rep in Christian circles, don't they? We know that we can't earn our salvation or work our way to heaven. We can't be good enough to earn God's favor or his merit because when we try to do that, right, then we stop resting in Christ, stop trusting him, uh, stop trusting his grace alone for our salvation. We begin to depend not upon Christ but upon ourselves and what I can do to earn my salvation. But as, as Paul reminded us earlier, God saved us not because of our works done by us in righteousness. God is not happy with you because you do good and are a good moral person. He's happy with you because of his son, Jesus, who gave himself for you. But that doesn't mean, believer, that doesn't mean that good works have nothing to do in the Christian life and have no place in your life. Far from it. Uh, we've been saved so that we might devote ourselves to good works. Martin Luther has been credited with saying, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. God uses you through your vocations, through your callings, through your giftings to serve your neighbor. He uses you as he has gifted you. Uh, if he's gifted you mechanically, maybe he's calling you to fix the car of the single mom who lives down the block. If, if he's gifted you with the ability to cook, maybe he's, he's calling you to make a meal for somebody uh, who hasn't been able to leave their house. Uh, maybe he's gifted you as a teacher and you have a love for kids. Maybe then he's calling you to be a Sunday school teacher or a VBS teacher, right? There are a million practical things that God could be calling you to do that he needs done, and he uses us to do those things. You are saved to do good works. You're not saved by your good works, but you're saved to do good works. Get doing them, Christian. Get doing them. We started out this morning by, by looking at the Trinity, right, with the, with the, with the kids and, and trying to comprehend that great mystery. And by the way, if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to read the, uh, the article in the back of your bulletin. Um, if you did, you probably noticed some similarities between the children's sermon and the uh, article. <laughs> I, uh, I hadn't read through that until this morning, actually, and huh, that's interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I planned out all of that stuff before I read the article. <laughs> uh, but, but she makes the point that the Trinity, uh, the, the holy triune nature of, of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a mystery that, that we see in Scripture, like the verses we studied this morning, but it's still a mystery that we'll never fully comprehend in our own reason and our own strength. And I think that's okay. Revel in those mysteries, but ultimately come back to the known truths, simple truths like he saved us and rest in those truths. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for your salvation. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on, on the cross for us, dying the death that we deserved. And Father, we uh, pray for those who, who might not know you, Lord, and we uh, pray that you give us the boldness and the courage to share with them uh, what you have done for us. Lord, uh, you have you have paid it all and all. We can't do anything to earn it, but to help us to share that with others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.